Well, good morning, guys. My name's Steve. Uh, I'm lead pastor. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, if you're a guest with us, man, I'm, I'm really glad you're here, and I hope you feel the welcome. We are starting a new sermon series this morning, and it's titled Parables, um, Stories of Comfort and Conviction. So parables, uh, as we look over the summer at the parables of Jesus, we're going to find that those two themes come out a lot. These stories uh, were designed to bring comfort to the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable, right? He, he wants to make those that, that, are, that are totally at ease really uneasy, and He wants to make those who are really uneasy brought to ease. And we're going to see that this morning um, in, uh, in, in our parable. Most parables um, are, are a bit challenging, right? Some of the parables are like sermon illustrations. They're just stories that make a really, really clear point. There are other parables, in fact, quite a few of them that are a lot more like, like holy riddles. Um, and Jesus would often say, those who have an ear to hear, let them hear. Right? Those who have eyes to see, let them see. Let the, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. What he was saying was, was he's, he's speaking a truth that not everyone's going to hear. He is putting before them a glorious reality that not everyone is going to see. That means there are different ways to listen. That means there are different ways to see. How you listen matters to whether or not you will understand the meaning. As we go through this series, I would encourage you to engage these parables. Most of them are short. Most of them can be read in a matter of a few minutes or or less, but don't allow the shortness of the stories um, deceive you into thinking that um, a quick readover gives you everything you need. These stories uh, are very much like like fields of, of, of rich treasure. They reward those who dig. Okay, you can walk through it and, and just get a glimpse of, of a few shiny things and be like, great, I can move on with my day. Or you can camp and you can dig and you can actually receive some genuine uh, riches, some real gems. And so I'm going to encourage you, this next week, um, I'm telling you, next week uh, Aaron's going to be up and Aaron's going to be doing Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Um, I think going forward, I'm going to try to get the following week's parable in the bulletin so that you have it with you, so that you can spend the week reading in it, right? Sit down with a journal and a cup of coffee, take a little bit of time, read it, think about it, sit in it, um, pray about it, ask the Lord to show you things that you haven't seen, okay? Next week, it's Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Uh, it is a parable that comes out of, out of Peter's question, right? Peter shows up and he's like, um, how many times do I need to forgive my brother? And he thinks he's being really generous. He's like seven times, and it goes from there. Um, so that's next week. So I would encourage you to, to sit in that parable of the unforgiving servant um, for next week. We're going to launch today with one of my favorite parables. Um, I was really excited when, when Aaron came up with the idea of doing parables over the summer, and, and, um, and then, man, it just gives me the opportunity to, to unpack one of my favorite parables this morning. It is often called the parable of the prodigal son, um, I, I think that is um, misnamed. It is a poorly named parable, as we will see. Um, it, it, it honestly might be better titled, He Who Has Ears to Hear, Let Him Hear, uh, as, as we will see. All right, it is named the prodigal son for a very good reason. Um, it focuses on the younger brother, and the younger brother in this parable gets most of the attention with good reason. It is an incredibly beautiful part of the story. 
right? But there are two other people in this story, right? There's the younger brother, but there's also the older brother and the father. And we're going to need to, if we're going to understand this parable, spend some time considering each of, of these characters. So we're going to begin with the prodigal son, right? Let's begin with the most familiar part of the story, verses 11 and 12. But he said, this is Jesus speaking to his audience, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So start there. We learn a lot about the younger son right there, right? This guy's impatient, right? This guy is, is impetuous. This guy uh, is self-indulgent because um, essentially what he's saying is, is he's showing up to his dad and he's like, hey, dad, you're going to die someday. And when you die, I'm going to get my share of the property. So can we just pretend you're dead? And let me have the property now. Would that be cool? Right? Why wait? Right? Let's just get to the end. Right? Why, why do all the formality of waiting until you die? Let's just pretend you're dead. Go ahead and divide up the property. Let me have it. It was a deeply disrespectful request. It was audacious. It was self-centered, self-gratifying, um, dishonorable. And what's crazy is that the father grants it. Right? The father grants it. The father goes ahead and divides. He takes his property and divides it among the two sons. Now, the older son would have gotten the lion's share of the property. Um, in that tradition, the, the older son was typically the executor of the will, the head of the home. He, he received the lion's share of what was, what was divided, but the younger son would have gotten his portion. Right? Take a look at verse 13. Not many days later... The younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Um, let's go through 16. So, um, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him out into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. All right, so the term prodigal comes from verse 13 where it says that he went out and wasted it in wasteful living. The word prodigal means wasteful, right? A lot of people think prodigal means wandering, right? The prodigal son is the son who wandered off and eventually came home, but that's not what the word means. It means wasteful. This was the son who, who took everything that his father gave him and then just wasted it recklessly in... Um, in a party, right? Uh, during this period of time, man, just this one little verse, um, he had to feel like all of his dreams were coming true. You know what I'm saying? Like in this one sentence, this one tiny little piece of the story, this was everything he had been longing for, right? How many years had he had gotten up and worked on this farm, longing for the time when he'd be free from it and, and, and be able to just get his wealth and, and go indulge himself at the party scene, right? During this period of time, I have no doubt he had plenty of friends, right? He, he was the life of the party, and he was funding the whole thing. He was bankrolling it. People were showing up, and, and there was always plenty to drink. There were always plenty of people around. They always had the paid DJ in the background. I mean, it was like happening. This was the party that everybody wanted to go to, and he was the life of the party. He was the center of attention. He had everybody's affection. 
Everybody knew his name. Everybody saw his face. Everybody wanted to be his friend. He was getting everything that he thought he wanted. Verses 14 through 16, though, tells us and reminds us of the reality of this one sentence. He was drawing from a pool of limited resources, and that pool eventually ran dry. He, he, was, he was wasteful. He was prodigal. And in his reckless wastefulness, there came a day when he couldn't fund the party. Um, now, some people would say this was really bad luck. Um, I think it's God's providence, of course, because at the moment his pool of funds dry up, a famine hits the land, which means everybody's resources dry up, right? If everybody still had a ton of money, there'd probably be a few people to be like, oh man, come crash with me. I'll give you my couch. I'll feed you for a little while. It's no problem, right? But when everything dries up, the false friends dry up with it. The ones that were there for the party, the ones that were there because he was funding the good time, the ones that were there because he made them laugh and made them, allowed them to have fun at his expense, they all disappeared. The famine didn't just hit his personal pocketbook, the famine hit his entire relational network, and as a result, he found himself completely alone. So according to the story that Jesus tells, he, he out of survival, hires himself out to a man in the country and this man says, all right, you want a job, I'll give you a job. You're going to go take care of my pigs. This would have been an incredibly dishonorable job for a Jewish man to have. Uh, pigs were unclean animals. And for him to tend the pigs would have been dishonor heaped upon dishonor. Right? He would have been daily defiling himself in the defilement of the pigs. He would have not just been personally filthy, he would have been ceremonially and spiritually unfilthy. No other Jewish person could approach him. He would have to go through, through a series, not just of, of washing his hands, but of, of ceremonial cleansing um, processes in order to wash away the filth for him to even be approached. He found himself in a pit of defilement, isolated, dishonored, and starving. It tells us that he was so hungry that he lusted after the pods that fed the pigs, right? How hungry do you have to be to lust after pig food? You know what I'm saying? Like, I've been around a few pig farms. They were not pleasant experiences. And the last thing I ever thought is when I watched them eat, oh, that makes me hungry. <laughs> That's not a thing that happened, right? Um, pigs are incredibly disgusting and dirty animals. They make really good bacon, but, but they're, you don't want to, I mean, it's just not, and so he's there and he's lusting over the very food that's being fed to the pigs, but Jesus makes it very clear, no one would help him. No one would help him. You ever been to that spot? You ever been to that spot where you were at the end of yourself? where you, you got to the end of the path you were traveling and it wasn't where you wanted to be? I'm not just talking about financial destitution. That might be it. I'm talking about relational destitution. I'm talking about emotional destitution. I'm talking about when you get to that spot and all of the choices you've made have brought you to this place 
and it's the last place you want to be. You ever been there? It's a hard place to be. He was at the end of himself. He was at the end of his resources. And he was at the end of his deceptions. Because what ends up happening is, is it, it, we can relate with this. We, we tend to create this fantasy, right? Life will be better if. If I could just get here, if I, can just, if I could just get this thing, if I could just have this experience, if I could just get this attention, if I could just get these resources, if I could just have this pleasure, if I could just take this path, it will take me to the place I'm not now. And some of us, by the grace of God, get there and discover that it is nothing like what we imagined it to be. It's just the opposite. It is a place of defilement, destitution, emptiness, isolation, loneliness, and pain. See, his money helped him fund his fantasy. And by God's grace, it dried up. And when it dried up, the fantasy dried up with it. And he was left with the reality, the stark reality of what his choices led him to. Take a look at verses 17 through 19. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Verse 17 has probably my favorite phrase in the entire parable. Um, Now, it's not my favorite scene. My favorite scene's coming up, but my favorite phrase. When he came to himself. He's sitting in this field that his, his self-deceptions had led him to, this idea that, 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 that this path was going to lead him to the fullness and flourishing of life, and it led him instead to this defiled field of isolation, loneliness, and pain. When he came to himself, there came a moment, there came a moment of brilliant clarity. He was no longer drunk in his sin. His perception of life was, was no longer um, um, distorted by his false fantasy of what would actually bring him joy and, and, and significance and importance. And, and he was no longer deceived by his false hopes. No longer lying to himself about himself or about his father. Previously, he had seen his father as a barrier to joy, an obstacle to be overcome, an inconvenience to be set aside. But as he is sitting here in the clarity, this brilliant clarity that resulted from God pulling away all the things that were making him drunk on his fantasy, he sees in a moment that has no self-pity or self-justification. A moment that is rooted in, in honest, humble vulnerability. He sees. My father's a good man. 
My father's a better man than I ever give him credit for. He thinks back to how his father treated him. He thinks back to how his father treated even the servants. And in that moment, in a place of desperate humility, there's no manipulation in the language. There is no self-pity. He says, I deserve nothing, but I believe my father is a man of generous kindness. So I'll go home and throw myself on his kindness and ask him if I could just become a servant. If I could just become a servant. So he climbs out of the muck and starts the walk home. Still covered in the filth of his rebellious choices. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't take a bypass over to the temple to to cleanse himself. He, there's no shower in the field. He gets up, and there's a straight line between him and the Father. And now comes really the most beloved part of the story for good reason. Take a look at verses 20 through 24. And he arose, and he came to his Father. But while he was still a long way off, the Father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I want you to notice something. He doesn't get even finish his speech, right? It's word for word from the previous passage. Doesn't even get to finish it, right? He's getting ready to say, can I just be your servant? And the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put the ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The son was eagerly welcomed home. Not as a servant, but as a son. Right? I, I love where it says that the father who was looking, obviously looking for him to return. He saw him a long way off in verse 20. And his father felt compassion. Not disappointment, not frustration, not regret, not even sadness. He felt compassion. Compassion. What would lead the Father to have compassion unless he understood? the deception that had ensnared his son and led him into that series of wasteful choices that led to his ruin. He understood the deception, and he had compassion on his son's weakness. And it stirred him with affection to see him returning. Instead of being welcomed home with suspicion or resentment or, or disappointment, he is embraced. He is covered with a new robe. He, he is restored to his sonship. He is celebrated. This is ridiculously good news for anyone who has ever found themselves at the end of themselves. 
This is ridiculously good news for anyone who has ever felt unloved and unlovely, unwanted, and not worth love. The younger son gets swept away back into the house to a party that ends all parties. He was like one that was dead, that was now raised back to life. Now we can see why this portion of the parable gets so much attention. Why the whole parable is named after this portion of the parable. Who doesn't love that story? It's an incredible story. It's an incredible invitation. And it is so counterintuitive that we would be, right? This, of course, is a parable about our relationship with God. And and Jesus is telling this parable that we might see, right? And so counterintuitive. But to understand this story, we need to move on and consider um, the father and the context. If we're really going to understand the story of the prodigal son, what I've just unpacked, we need to understand the father and the cultural context. Uh, Tim Keller, in, in describing the, the prodigal son, argues that he, he thinks the, the parable should be called the prodigal father, the wasteful father, right? Because the father is honestly, from a cultural perspective, dishonorably wasteful in this story. First of all, he gave his son his wish. He gave his son his wish. Now think about it. What father does that? When a son shows up and is like, hey, dad, I I wish you were kind of dead. I would much rather just have your wealth. Uh, What do you think? You want to just divide it all up now and pretend you're dead so I can have it? I mean, what father does that? What father's like, if that's what you want. I'll divide up all my possessions, and I'll give them to you. You need to understand, this isn't just crazy for us. It's even crazier for the ancient Jewish culture in which the story was told. Honor was a deeply ingrained value in their culture. In fact, it still is in Eastern cultures. Now, now we don't give a rip about honor. Let's just be honest. In Western culture, if somebody gets wealthy, we don't care how they got it. If they show up in a Bugatti and they climb out all blingy and gold, we're like, who are they and how can I get in the background of that picture? I mean, that's just, we are attracted to wealth and we are, by and large, I'm just going to say it, a very dishonorable culture. Means to an end, man. The end is what's important, not how you got there. We don't care. And sadly, that's spilled over into much of Christian culture too. But, But in Eastern culture, honor Honor was more important than wealth, right? In the Proverbs, it, is, it says that, that a good name is rather to be chosen than great wealth. And we're like, what? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But in the Eastern culture, they'd have been all like, yeah, that's absolutely true. You know why? Because they had two economies. They had the economy of wealth, and, and it wasn't that they didn't want to, to do well and be comfortable and provide for themselves. They did. They, they wanted to grow in wealth. But there was another economy that was even more important, and that was the economy of honor. In the economy of honor, that's, that's where true wealth was found. You wanted to be rich, not just financially. You wanted to be rich in honor. When I got to go visit Kyrgyzstan um, a number of years ago to visit a team that we had in Arslanbab, which was a, a, a small village in Kyrgyzstan, um, 
I got to stay in a host family's home. I got to taste the culture, right? I was actually, I was actually brought into a family. Right? They didn't have hotels. You stay in the home. You stay with the family, and, 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 and you do life rhythms with them. And, and, and one of the things that I learned over the course of that, that time was they had this thing called tonish. And tonish was this word that described an economy of honor. People in the community that had high tonish were respected. People who had high, high tonish got better deals. People who had high tonish, if they needed a loan, or man, they got it and they got the best rates, right? It didn't matter how much money they had. If they had high tonish, they walked down the street and people saw them, honored them, and valued them. You could have a lot of money and low tonish in that culture and you would still be on the outskirts of acceptance. People were not impressed by your wealth because in a small community like that, honor is hugely important because your behavior affects the entire village. Every choice you make it impacts the lives of everyone else there. Tonish was, was, was a, an economy that was connected to their ability to do life together. Tonish. When the father gave his son his wish, he willfully and outlandishly embraced dishonor. He willfully and outlandishly diminished the value of his family name. And then, after his son leaves, he spends his days looking for him to come back going out and looking at the road and waiting. And in these communities, everybody was talking. They would see him. They knew what he had done. These aren't private matters. In a community like this, nothing's private. In Eastern communities, man, everybody's business is everybody's business, right? And, 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 and people saw him, and it continued to, to heap dishonor on the family. And when he does finally peak, his, his young son coming over the horizon, the text tells us he not only had compassion, he ran to him. Jewish men did not run. Jewish men had others who ran. It was undignified for him to scoop up his robes and tie them around him, run to this son in front of all of his servants, in front of his entire community and then embraced him. A son covered in the filth of pigs. A son ceremonially unclean. A son covered in the filth of his rebellion and his rejection of all that was meant to be right and ordered in that culture. A, man who had, a young man who had, who, had, who had flown in the face of cultural expectations and even the law of God. He embraced him. And then he calls for a new robe to cover his indignity with dignity. He calls for a ring to be put on his finger. A ring wasn't just a, a piece of jewelry. A ring is what they used for sealing official documents. It meant that he was fully, absolutely restored as a son with power. That he could, in fact, help manage the finances and the comings and goings of the family business. He gave his son honor. But in so doing, he covered himself with his son's shame. 
And then he made it even better. He threw a public party. He's like, let's just invite the entire neighborhood. Let's get the whole village. Right? Just in case somebody didn't know. Just in case somebody hasn't seen. Let's throw the biggest party this place has ever seen. Let's invite everybody to celebrate my dishonor. This wastefulness of my tonish. Pouring my tonish out in the streets, wasting it, and destroying my reputation and the reputation of my family. He invited the entire community to this display of dishonor. Come and celebrate. The son who was lost has been found. The one who had died has been raised again. All right, so I think we can see an absolutely clear application. And I want to pause and just make it clear. Jesus is telling us something profound about God. That God doesn't expect us to clean ourselves up before we draw near. God does not expect us to fix ourselves before we become acceptable to Him. He doesn't demand that we make ourselves somehow lovely in order for us to love us. He loves us and then covers us with His dignity, a dignity that was purchased through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Christ was covered with our shame that we might be covered with His dignity. He was covered with our guilt that we might be covered with His righteousness. He suffered the judgment we deserved so we could stand in the blessing that only He could give. What a beautiful story. What a beautiful invitation. And you know what's really even more beautiful, y'all? A lot of people are like, yeah, I love the story of the prodigal son. But we have a hard time believing that we always get the prodigal welcome. I did that once. I got that welcome. Surely now God is disappointed. Surely now God is tired. Now, surely now he's disappointed. And yet, this is not just a temporary gesture of a generous father. This is the eternal posture of a gracious God. There is never a time when you will run to the Father that He is not first running to embrace you. There is never a time when you will come to your senses and say, I once again need my Father, that He has not already begun to celebrate the fact that He gets to pour out His grace once again on you. To love you freely, recklessly, and wastefully with the grace that was purchased with the very death and resurrection of His Son. We love that story. But I want you to try to see this story from the perspective of the original hearers. When an irresponsible, dishonored, wasteful kid is celebrated for no other reason than the fact that he walked up the road covered in pig filth and asked to be taken back in as a servant. That that leads us to the least known part of this story, um, the older brother. (laughs) This is the part of the story most people forget is there, right? And yet it's critical. Take a look at verses 25 through 28. Now his older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. 
Now, you all know what he was doing out in the field, right? What was he doing? He was working, right? Like he did every day. Like he had done every day of his life, more than likely covering for his slacker brother. More than likely doing the work his brother failed to do or redoing the work his brother failed to do well. He came in, heard the music and dancing, verse 26, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Think about it. Is that not the only logical response? I think a lot of times we read this and we're like, man, what a jerk. His brother's back. There's a party. Just get over it. Without ever actually putting ourselves in the reality of the situation. He had been faithful. He had worked hard. He had obeyed the rules. He had done all the right things. He had made all the sacrifices. He, he followed the advice, right? Do the hard things now so you can do the fun things later, right? Do the things you don't want to do now so that you can do the things you want to do later. And he saw his brother break all the rules. And now what does he get? A party. Who do you think cared most about the family name in this story? Who do you think was the one who felt the loss of Tanish most keenly? That his, he, was, he was being drugged into bankruptcy in the economy of honor. The one who did all the extra work, the one who obeyed all the rules, the one who did all the stuff he was supposed to do because his slacker, selfish brother showed back up. And now he hears, as he's coming in from the field, that his name, his honor, was again being dis- diminished and, 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 and his tonish was, was being drugged through the mud. And he gets angry. Is that not perfectly reasonable? Is that not what you yourself probably would have done? He gets so angry that he refuses to go in. I'm not going to degrade myself with you. I'm not going to go into this this party of debauchery and celebration of dishonor. I'm not going to do it. I've worked hard. This behavior actually starts to make sense when we look at it through this lens. Take a look at verses 1 through 3, the very beginning of the chapter, because I want you to see something important. It's important for us to know who Jesus is talking to as he tells this story. In chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, now tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Tax collectors and sinners were people of low tonish. They were people that were disrespected in the society. They might have been physically wealthy, but they were, they were seen as, as just the dregs, man. Tax collectors worked for the Roman government and had betrayed their Jewish heritage. Sinners were, man, they were just sinners, right? prostitutes and, 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 and people just out there doing all this defiling thing, right? They're all drawn near to Jesus. People low tonish, right? Now look at verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. <laughs> so the Pharisees and the scribes are there too. These are people of high tonish. 
They had done the hard work. They went to the right colleges. They learned the right things. They wore the right clothes. They obeyed the right rules. They did everything to be seen as respectable and worthy. People of high tarnish grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, at this point in the story, the Pharisees and the scribes, man, they weren't necessarily out to kill Jesus yet. They heard this great rabbi was traveling through the town, and this guy was getting a ton of attention, and everybody was gathering around him. And as people of high tarnish, they're drawn to that because they're thinking, one, maybe he's got some things I need to hear, but two, maybe some of his tarnish can rub off on me. This is a guy of high respect. People are following him. He's getting all this influence. Surely he's somebody who is high and tonish, and they show up and they find out he surrounds himself with people that lower his tonish, that rob him of the economy of honor. And they grumble because he's not playing by the rules. And yet he's getting attention. He's getting followers. He's getting respect. He shouldn't. Because he's surrounding himself with people who should be defiling him, lowering his tarnished value, robbing him of honor so that people don't listen to him or follow him or pay attention to him. They become jealous, and as a result, they, they grumble. See, they would have identified with the older brother. When Jesus got to this point of the story, they would have been the ones nodding like, yeah, he's the only one in this story that makes any sense. He's the only one that has any common sense. Who would go to that party? They liked an economy that rewarded good, honest, hard work. They liked a kind of life where when you did the right thing, you got the right reward. A life that said, if I do good, I'm worth more. If I work hard, I deserve better. If I excel and accomplish... I deserve greater credit. Hmm. And the story takes another twist. Verse 28b through the end there. 28b. His father came out and entreated him. Notice it doesn't tell us anything that he said. I think that's partly because the older brother didn't hear a word that he said. He just entreated him, right? Verse 29. But he answered his father, right? He had already worked out exactly what he was going to say. Look. These many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. I did all the right things. I worked hard, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You never gave me the reward I deserved. But when this son of yours came, you can hear the disdain in his voice, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. I think a lot of times what we miss is the fact the father once again did the dishonorable thing. The father right or wrong threw a party. The father, right or wrong, sent out servants to get his oldest son and say, come to the party. And the oldest son dishonored his father by not obeying. Even as he's proclaiming his obedience to the Father, he's doing it in disobedience. Right? Completely ignoring 
his own failures, as he fills his vision with his own successes, and accuses his father, even as his father has just done the same thing for him that he did for the younger brother. He left the party. He humbled himself and once again dishonored himself to go out into the field of his self-righteousness to meet him face to face. In the same way he ran down the road to embrace the younger brother, he now leaves the party out into the field of self-righteousness to embrace the older brother, but his older brother will not receive it. He meets his defiant son in love and entreats him with love. Appealing to him to come, to celebrate, to reject the false economy of performance and accomplishment. To reject the false economy that I am worth more if I do more. The false economy, if I do better, I am better. The false economy that says, if I'm more moral, I am more loved. Reject the false economy. Leave it behind and come to the party. And the elder brother won't do it. He won't do it. He instead gives his memorized speech of self-righteousness and self-pity. I am right. I have earned my standing. You have not paid the debt you owe me. I want the favor that I have earned that is my due not the favor that you would give out of grace. You, Father, never rewarded me for the way I deserved what I deserved, and now you're asking me to come and receive a dishonorable display of a favor that no one has earned. I will stay here in my field, my field of self-righteousness, self-accomplishment, self-definition, my field of, of perceived honor covered in his own dishonor. Now that's where the parable ends. It's an enigmatic ending, right? Oh, hey. <laughs> that's not the happy ending. I, I'm guessing that's part of the reason most people ignore the second half of the parable, right? That part's not as fun. But it's critically important, y'all. Jesus isn't just comparing two sons in a story. He's comparing two different ways of approaching the Father. He is approaching two different values of honor and meaning. He is comparing grace and law. Religion, performance, self-improvement, and love. Both sons at the start are using the father as a means to an end. Both sons. The younger son is, is, is I, I want to use you to gain pleasure. Because I'm going to get the fullness of life by pursuing pleasure, by having experiences and, and doing all these things that I can't do right now. I'm going to use you as a means to an end. And the older son wanted to use the father to gain honor and a religious name for himself. They were both using the father as a means to an end. They were both trying to get to the fullness of life apart from the Father who gives it. One was doing it through rule-keeping. One was doing it through rule-breaking. One was doing it through performance. One was doing it through indulgence. One was doing it through the economy of tonish and, and respect, and the other was doing it through the economy of pleasure and experience. The critical difference between the two sons is not 
the form of their rebellion. The critical difference between the two sons is that moment where the younger son came to himself. His eyes and his ears were opened to the reality that his path led to death. No matter which way that path went, it always ended in the field with the pigs. He suddenly realized that path was not the path to the fullness of life. It was the path to degradation, isolation, and filth. The older brother, on the other hand, is left standing in his field of self-righteousness, angry and full of self-pity. In all of his moral improvements and all of his self-discipline and all of his great life building, he had never reached the end of himself or his pride. The young son realized that the economy of pleasure was bankrupt. The older son never saw the emptiness of his economy of self-respect, self-improvement, and self-righteousness. The younger brother recognized that he had sinned against the uh, heaven and, and his father, and, and in humility and in brokenness, he took a giant step of faith, realizing the vastness of his own depravity, the vastness of his own defilement. He came to his father to get whatever blessing he possibly could, and the blessing he received far outstripped anything he could have ever hoped for. He came with his deep need and was overwhelmed with God's overwhelming grace. The older son didn't see his own sin. He only saw the dishonor of his brother's behavior, that son of yours. He didn't see his own need, only the disgrace of grace given to somebody who was unworthy of it. He wanted the party, but not that party. He wanted the celebration, but not that celebration. He wanted to be the celebration. He wanted his righteousness, his performance, his record to be at the center of the celebration, not the grace of a father who gives it freely. His father said, I love you to both sons. And the younger son heard it. He had ears to hear. Instead of using his father to a means, as a means to an end, he suddenly found that his father's love was the end. He went to that party different and changed. No longer deceived about the path of pleasure, he recognized that his deepest need was met, not through a series of ever-increasing experiences, but through that embrace of a father who freely and generously and ridiculously pours out unearned unreserved acceptance and love. The older brother couldn't hear it. Father came and said, I love you, and he couldn't hear it because he didn't value it. He only valued his own reputation. He only valued his own self-improvement. He only valued his own glory. And was still trying to use his father as a means to an end. He wanted his religious good behavior to be affirmed and celebrated. He wanted to be the center, not his father's grace. He wanted to earn favor, not have it give it to him as a gift. When his father showed up and said, leave it behind, leave it behind, leave this empty path behind, stop performing, stop working, stop proving yourself, stop, lay it down, that felt like death to him. 
And he'd rather die to his father than die to his own self-righteousness. When his father said, come to the party and be loved, he did not have ears to hear. He couldn't hear the love of his father. Guys, this is the nature of the parables. And this is the nature of the gospel itself. It is incredibly good news with an incredibly and overwhelmingly good invitation. But it will only be good if we know our need. It can only give us comfort if we know the affliction of our sin. If we've been woken up to our desperate bankruptcy and need for grace, if we have, this will be a message of tremendous and overwhelming comfort. Otherwise, it will afflict our comfort. It will challenge us that whatever we're trying to use to establish our own name, build our own reputation, is in fact keeping us apart from God. The sinners and tax collectors went home comforted. The Pharisees and scribes grew angry and offended. Same message, different responses. As we move through the parables over the course of this series, I'm going to ask you to reflect on your heart's response to these parables. Do I find myself comforted or afflicted? Do I find this a message of invitation or a message I want to ignore and push away? And then ask the deeper question, why? What am I trying to protect that's keeping me from receiving God's love? What am I trying to protect that is keeping me from being embraced ridiculously by the Father and giving myself wholly to that embrace? There is no neutral. This is either very, very good news or it is offensive. It's either to be ignored or rejected or embraced. Let's embrace it. I'm going to close this in word of prayer. Ask the uh, Spirit to do His work. We'll move into a time of response in a moment, sharing communion. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank You for this incredibly beautiful story that shows us the ever-present welcome of grace, that we can come at any moment. We don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to fix ourselves. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to beat ourselves up long enough. Man, we at any moment, if we simply will, by faith, step toward that love, you are already coming to embrace us and swallow us and cover us in a dignity that is not our own, giving us a ring that leads to our own freedom, power, joy, transformation. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Increase our appetite for this greater goal. Free us from our incessant need to try to switch back into performing and pretending, trying to earn what you will only give freely. Oh, let us just be loved. It is so hard for us to believe that you love us when we feel so unworthy of that love. It is so hard for us to receive an embrace we don't think we deserve. It is so hard for us when we assume you must be disappointed, you must be angry, you must be alienated. For us to know that you love us freely, ready to give us what we could never earn. Father, let us hear that message because the alternative is just to close our hearts to go back to 
tilling the soil and the field of our self-righteousness. What a miserable, lonely, and isolated path that is. We thank you, Lord, for grace. Guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.